This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 579. And the quote of the day is, all our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 579 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for checking it out. Speaking of checking it out, I got something that you should definitely check out. I have another podcast called Music Biz Uncut, and I talk to people from all walks of life in the music industry, everything from managers to label executives to performers to artists to booking agents, sort of everyone in between to give a wider view of the music industry, understanding what business you're in. And this episode or this podcast, excuse me, is really about about drumming, drummers resources. So this other side of the music business is what we talk about in Music Biz Uncut. Check it out. You can listen by just going to my website, nickrafini.com. Or if you want to get right to the podcast, go to nickrafini.com forward slash listen. All right. So let's get into this episode. I'm extremely excited about this episode. This is with Matt Cameron, the drummer from Pearl Jam. He is a multi-instrumentalist. He's a writer. He's a composer. And before Pearl Jam, he was in Soundgarden. We talk about coming up in Seattle in the 80s grunge and 90s grunge scene. We talk about his work with Soundgarden. We talk about joining Pearl Jam. Uh, he offers up advice for people in the industry now. And this, this is a wide-ranging conversation. And he has all types of nuggets in here because why because he's matt cameron and he's the man so i'm super excited that i got him on the podcast i'm not going to waste any more time here he is the one the only mr matt cameron matt cameron how are you i'm good man how you doing nick i'm doing well i appreciate you doing this and we for the people listening at home uh, I was trying to do, I was talking about your room that you're in, that you have <laughs> this converted bedroom that you turned into a studio, right? Yeah. Uh, how much recording are you doing at home? A lot. Um, yeah. That's how I spend a lot of my time in general. But now that the lockdown is in full effect, uh, I've been diving in pretty heavily with uh, writing music, uh, finishing music that I started a long time ago, mm -hmm. um, working on various uh, music projects. Uh, I, I collaborate, collaborated with a, uh, a couple groups since, I guess, April. Uh, people would send me some stems and I would send them back stems of uh, mm -hmm. drum, drum parts or electronic drums and things like that. So that, that's been really fun. I was going to um, ask, are you doing it as projects that you're working on or is it like people i can get matt cameron to play drums on my record kind of thing yeah uh one was that one one was a group that wanted me to play on their album mm -hmm. and uh and another project i i just did with josh freese he is uh putting together a bunch of music and songs of uh that uh include drummers who can you know write music and uh, sing and things like that. So right. he sent me a drum track and I played guitar and vocal. I put guitar and vocals over that. And then I sent him a drum track and he nice. put guitar and vocals on that. So that, that was a lot of fun. Um, is the yeah, Josh just, free stuff like to just totally 
insane because some of the stuff i was at his house a couple <laughs> years ago and he let me hear some stuff and he was like he's like falling over in the chair laughing at it about <laughs> like how over the top and insane it is yeah he he really uh he's a multifaceted, multi uh you know dimensional kind of artist you know he yeah. he makes really interesting super funny videos <laughs> and uh any he, and he writes completely wild music so so that was a lot of fun working with him nice what were you saying the other projects i cut you off there oh um yeah just uh just you know uh and then i'm kind of working on some of my own my own stuff um and uh yeah so just you know, I, I really enjoy writing music and writing songs and recording demos and things mm -hmm. like that. So that's how I've been spending a lot of my time along, you know, with hanging out with my family and, sure. and I'm taking care of my mom and things like that. So uh, I've got a lot of uh, daily responsibilities, but um, when I can, you know, just get a few hours to myself, I'm always just digging right back into uh, various music ideas that I've, I'm working on. Sure. That's always the hard part about it being a drummer that I always found is writing. So yeah. there's a lot of drummers out there who don't play another instrument or right. trying to figure that out. What are you writing on predominantly? Uh, guitar. guitar. I, I normally start my ideas on, you know, with a guitar riff or a progression. Um, and then from there, I'll, you know, I'll put a bass part on it. I'll uh, put some keyboards on it, uh, program a little drum, drum part, and, uh, you know, try to find some melodies to sing over. So... Mm -hmm. I have kind of a, you know, set pattern on how I like to get ideas started, but, but, uh, that can always, um, come from, you know, also listening to a piece of music that I, uh, you know, that, that draws my attention. If it's a chord progression, if it's a mood of a certain piece of music, I'll, I'll try to, you know, gain inspiration from that as well. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I've been playing guitar since my late teens, I guess, you know, Got you. so it's always been a big part of my, uh, my musical identity for sure. And are you relying on others to sort of flesh out those ideas once they're, once uh, they're down or are they yeah. like the finished product? There's no, I mean, I, 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 am definitely a collaborator and I'm, um, I'm working with uh, a couple different projects where I'm, you know, going to contribute some music and then we're all going to start sort of dig in and try to, you know, uh, rearrange stuff or um, add or subtract things. Uh, yeah. A lot of times my songs are, um, uh, they're, they're, they're pretty well fleshed out, but, you know, working in a collaborative band environment, I definitely like to, uh, you know, bounce my ideas off of other musicians. Mm -hmm. that, that's always been the struggle that I've, I've talked with a lot of people about, whether being a sideman or being in a band, and the idea of saying, I, I'm a collaborative person, I want to be in a band, I want to be right. part of the decisions, the, the songwriting, the, yeah. and, all, and, if you're, and if you're a hired gun, yeah. A lot of times you don't, you don't get any of those, any of those freedoms. Have you, have you had to sort of struggle with that? Throughout your oh, career? sure. Oh, sure. For sure. I mean, I, I don't really consider it a struggle as just sort of, you know, our job description, mm -hmm. um, being a, because being a drummer. Jam, that's how you started, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, you know, I, I came into uh, an established uh, group when I joined Pearl Jam and uh, I didn't really want to, you know, rock the boat per se. I wanted to make sure that, uh, they felt good with, with what I was bringing to the, to the band. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that they, they knew my history with Soundgarden was a, uh, a real creative partnership that I had with, with the other guys in the group. I would write music and I would, 
arrange stuff. I was, I was kind of the musical director, you know, in a lot of ways in Soundgarden. Mm-hmm. Um, so they knew that, uh, that I had those abilities, but I didn't want to like come in, you know, guns a blazing and say, and like, you know, insist that people work on my music and things like that, just cause it wasn't really my place at that time. Right. But eventually once we started, you know, working on uh, the first album uh, that I played with them on Binaural, I uh, I contributed a song and it and it worked great, and the guys just dove right in. But uh, but yeah, you know, I, I I think our role as drummers is to support the singer, the soloist, the you know, the songwriter, producer, what what have you. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that it's really important for me to always uh, not lose sight of, of that part of my role as mm-hmm. a, as a drummer and a musician. But at the same time, I get uh, a lot more, I'm not, well, maybe not more, but I, I get as much pleasure in creating my own music, arranging it uh, and presenting it to whomever a band or, or if I'm just working on my own solo stuff, uh, I, I find that to be as uh as rewarding as you know playing to a packed stadium right <laughs> right so I, when i look at someone like an eddie vetter it kind of reminds me of the same way adam duritz is with counting crows about how eddie doesn't sing the same way every time he sings the songs differently mm-hmm. you know and the the way that the cadence of the of the lyrics and things like that how hard was that to follow one when you're joining pearl jam but also even now i mean is it because you're you're supporting him as a as the singer how hard is it to follow him while he's changing the lyrics in real time well uh it it doesn't it's never it's never really tripped me up that much in all honesty uh i I just consider it part of the performance um Mm -hmm. so i just try to stay keenly aware of uh you know where where eddie or you know or Chris, you know, like where, where they would uh, sort of pinpoint their performance at, at any given night. Um, I would just make sure to try to support, you know, if there's like a little diversion, diversion, uh, you know, I, I try to, I try to support that. I try to, you know, listen to everyone, but I want to make sure that the vocalist is, uh, is supported with, with what I'm doing. I don't, I don't want to step on their toes. I want them to have the best, night that they can possibly have sure sure you would we were talking a little bit about the difference between sideman being in the band collaborative environment and things and you had touched on a little bit about about your job description and Mm -hmm. what's your advice for for the sort of headspace or or uh the way that you should approach those those two different gigs if you're in the collaborative environment versus going in as someone as a hired gun say look here's the song list play the songs here's your money go home yeah, well, you have to read the room. You have to know what environment you're getting yourself into. Uh, so if that's clearly established established before you do the gig, then then that's what you do. You know, it's it's pretty easy. Uh, but you know, like like I was saying before, it's like uh, being a songwriter. I I need to know when uh, to choose my moment to present something. You know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and yeah, it's kind of, it's different for us drummers because we're not, you know, if, you know, if I'm in a band with like Eddie Vedder or Chris Cornell or some like just amazing songwriter, it's like, they don't really need like my songs or or anyone else's songs, you know, but, uh, but when you, 
when you sort of recognize the, the collaborative aspect of, of bands and how that can lead to um, something different than what the songwriter was perceiving or the producer was um, trying to, you know, focus the band's attention towards, then it, it can be a nice, a nice surprise. So uh, mm-hmm. I always try to um, sort of guide the, you know, the music uh, it, it, in the best sort of direction that, that, I, that I hear it going. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I hear, you know, if I hear like, you know, uh, something in, you know, like a bass part or, a, you know, a guitar part that, that I think could be better or kind of reworked, you know, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll, I'll chime in. Right. Um, and, you know, it's the same way with the other guys. If they have a, have a rhythm or, you know, percussion idea, then I'll definitely listen and try to, try to make sure everyone is, is, uh, is on the same page. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So before getting in bands with, you know, Chris Cornell and Eddie Vedder and all that, let's, I want to rewind a little bit and talk about you growing up in San Diego yeah. and talk to me about the music scene then at the time was, I mean, obviously you're close to LA, so you have the, the hotbed of, of music there. What was it like in San Diego though, growing up in terms of music? What were you listening to? What were you listening to in your house? Yeah. You know, it was pretty much me listening to records in my bedroom and uh, hanging out with friends that had really good record collections. There wasn't, uh, I didn't really go to like see much live music um, until I reached like age 14 or 15. Uh, At that time, you know, you know, like I, I, I did get to see, uh, like my first rock concert was David Bowie in 1976. Amazing. And then I saw Kiss, I saw Queen, I saw Aerosmith. I, I saw like all the best 70s um, touring acts at the time. Ted mm-hmm. Nugent was amazing, even though he's a complete pile of a person. <laughs> His show was fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, I feel like so, th- that show would be like them shooting off shotguns in the air. And kind of, like, yeah. I don't no, know it, was, why. it was a lot of hair flips, a lot of loincloths, a lot of feedback. <laughs> I like um, it. So it's like, you know, I, I, I saw these like, you know, big arena rock concerts when I was growing up. Um, and then my dad took me to go see, uh, my dad was a big jazz fan and mm-hmm. he took me to go see Count Basie a couple times and I saw Buddy Rich so luckily, you know, growing up in San Diego, uh, the, the part of San, the, the, the part of the, the city that I grew up in was, was kind of like out in the sticks, kind of in the desert almost. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but there were opportunities to see um, some live concert that, concerts that, you know, I think kind of changed my, my wiring in my brain somehow. Yeah, it, how so? I was just so? It was just so inspiring. I was just so amazed at the... Like when I saw Queen for the first time, it just like, I don't know, it just blew my mind uh, when I saw Bowie. Um, so, I, you know, I, I got all these sort of like early inspirations um, from seeing some big, big shows. But then I listened to uh, a lot, of, you know, just a lot of Jimi Hendrix, a lot of Aerosmith, a lot of Cheap Trick, like, mm-hmm. you know, Zeppelin, um, kind of the, 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 the best rock music from the 60s and 70s is what I grew up with. Uh, and then, you know, once I, once I started uh, playing drums seriously at about age 13, 14, 
I started getting gigs playing in cover bands. Um, and, uh, I started taking lessons seriously by the time I was 17. And then I, I got into a, a bunch of bands, uh, covers and originals and, uh, you know, everything in between jazz, yeah. whatnot. Um, so I was gigging pretty heavily by the time I was 17, you know, wow. uh, I was, uh, always really focused on playing as many gigs as I could get, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I, I pretty much said yes to, to almost everything, which I'm meant- sure people are listening saying, where are you gigging at, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 years uh, old? Yeah, uh, I was neighborhood bands. We would play uh, house parties. We would play some high school uh, uh, talent shows, um, school functions, things like that. Right, right. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's like I, I was always kind of out there playing. Mm-hmm. When, you were, when you're seeing these big arena rock bands like Queen or, or David Bowie, or, are you thinking that's possible? Are you thinking that one day I can be playing at these huge arenas yeah, myself i think so i mean I, I i remember thinking that after i saw queen play like mm-hmm. man I, I would love to have that experience you know i would love to play a big show in front of that many people um so i think in the back of my mind yeah i had no idea on how to do it there's no sure there's no rule book on you know how to how to play an arena but um, I think those experiences were, uh, they really cemented some, something inside of me that, uh, I knew was inspiring and I knew that, you know, someday like I, you know, may- maybe, maybe that could be me. Right. Right. So what prompted the move to, you moved to Seattle when you were what, 21? When I was 20. Uh, how do you go yeah. from beautiful San Diego to <laughs> cold and rainy Seattle? <laughs> I, I needed to change. Uh, yeah. I, I was at that time in my life where uh, I went to community college for about a year. I was just working day jobs. I really wasn't getting anywhere in San mm-hmm. Diego. The music scene was mostly uh, like cover, you know, top 40 cover bands. Uh, and I, 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 that didn't really interest me. I, I was more interested in, in uh, you know, writing music and collaborating with uh, other musicians who wrote their own music. Um, so a friend of mine that I played in a band with in San Diego moved to Seattle in 1982. And I went up there and I, I just went up for a visit in 1983, mm-hmm. brought my drums. I played in his band for a little bit and I, lo- I loved it up there. So I, I stayed. Because you, you know, would think I, the obvious move from San Diego would just be, oh, I'll just move up to LA. I'll still know, be right. That, 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 that would probably would have been the smart thing to do. <laughs> Well, maybe not, because that would have had a totally different, you know, a totally different trajectory of your entire yeah. life and career. Yeah, instead of going to the industry town, I went to the Podunk. You know, <laughs> but look what was way. happening there. Out of the, it was Seattle was just at the time was, it, it just seemed like a a small town, but it had a really cool vibe. It had a good arts community. It had had a nice downtown city. Uh, part of part of it um uh and i hooked up with all these really interesting uh musicians artists as soon as i moved up there it's like Mm -hmm. i just plug myself into the you know the local music scene and you know uh i met all the soundgarden guys in like 1984 um you know uh so i 
uh, and I went to go see all these really cool rock bands, you know, in, in 83, 84, the U-Men and, um, uh, I mean, they, they were probably my, my favorite, the blackouts and the U-Men were really mm -hmm. big when I moved up there, up there. Uh, but there was also a lot of, um, kind of, uh, uh, new wave. There were some new wave bands that were, that were kind of poised to become the next big thing. So when I first moved up there, I felt like, you know, kind of the new wave, uh, I don't know, like, uh, Oingo Boingo, Bananarama, you know, Thompson Twins, that kind of thing that was really big at the time. Right. Um, there were some bands up there that had that kind of vibe, uh, which didn't really interest me. Um, but, uh, but there was a lot of very original um, musicians and mm -hmm. artists and like something I probably could have never found in Los Angeles or, or New York, like, a, you know, an, an industry town. Right, right. Uh, Seattle was definitely its, its own little cloistered independent scene at that time. And I, and I really dug it. It's amazing how these little pockets of, at the time, sort of micro genres start to pop up in different areas. Like you had Seattle, yeah. you know, but then, you know, prior to that, there was San Francisco and you had Memphis Absolutely. and you had all of these different areas where all of a sudden there's this groundswell and then it just explodes and it turns Absolutely. into this thing. Well, there was this, there was a, uh, uh, you know, there was an underground movement going on in the 80s and the bands that we all looked up to in Seattle were like, you know, the, like the, you know, the, the big blacks and the scratch acids and the, uh, you know, the Husker Dues, like all these bands from like, you know, Minneapolis, Austin, Boston, San Francisco, like there was all the, you know, uh, Amherst, uh, mm -hmm. dinosaur junior. There was all these, uh, yeah, like you said, little pockets of, uh, these movements that were, that were, the, all these different movements were connecting, you know, there, we had like SST, we had rough trade, we had, uh, we had, uh, alternative tentacles. We had all these, you know, cool, uh, record labels that had nothing to do with the established, um, you know, music industry. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, when Soundgarden signed to SST in 1988, uh, we, we felt like that was like a huge, a huge victory for us because we were all such fans of all the bands on SST. Right. Um, and we could have, you know, we were about ready to sign with A&M as well. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, the, the major labels were starting to sniff around at our, you know, at our 80s underground scene around, right. you know, and A and M was a major like like then, the right? mid eighties, the late eighties. Like they figured out, oh shit! Like you know, these bands could actually you know do do something on a right. major label. But at the time, we were just like, you know what? Like we we had a circuit all figured out. We had mm -hmm. touring figured out. We had promoters. We had places to stay. You know, so it's like we didn't really we weren't really looking towards the you know established music industry uh, to. Uh, uh, define success for right. us. So it was a a really interesting time to to play uh, to play in a rock band in the states uh, and and in Western Europe. Uh, you know, for all those reasons I just I just described. Um, so it was it was really exciting. It was it yeah. was really fun because it was uh, and it was so homemade too. Like you know, there was no computers. There was there was nothing. I mean. 
we kind of created these little scenes out of just out of nothing. That's the part that's always that always amazes me. There's no, there's not mass communication like there is now, or or you know, there's no internet so people can find the music anywhere. It's people right. trading tapes or or you know, buy figuring out the record because their friend bought it or something yeah. like that. It's totally organic. Well, we used to uh, put out you know, a little piece of paper at our early Soundguard shows. A lot of bands did this for a mailing list. Like we'd have yeah. people just write down their address and we would send out a flyer. Or we, you know, we'd had a little mail- mailing list going where we'd, you know, promote a tour or a single or, you know, whatnot. Um, yeah. So uh, it was a lot of, uh, you know, pencil to paper. Yeah. <laughs> and when you signed with SST, I'm guessing you didn't want to go with A and M because of what you just mentioned, but also was was there fear of maybe some kickback or or um, some some sort of aggression from the fans? Because I know that a lot of yeah. it's so funny. We want these bands to get to get big yeah. and get big, and then they get too big, and then they're like, oh, they sold out. I don't I don't want them. I don't, I don't or, like them anymore. Or they kind of change their identity immediately just right. to get uh, success. You know. Sure. Um, well, Soundgarden was getting major label interest in like the year the year I joined, like '86. Mm-hmm. We were getting, we could have signed with Warner Brothers, you know, like right. back then, but we didn't want to. We we wanted to um, establish ourselves in the in the underground before mm-hmm. we, you know, jumped jump ship. Uh, yeah, we the the A and M deal. Um, you know, we were talking to them before we signed with SST and, uh, and we said, you know, well, you're just gonna have to wait, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you want us, you're just gonna have to wait. We're going to do this other thing. And if you're around, great. If not, then, then we'll figure it out. Okay, too. <laughs> yeah. It's one thing to talk about how great Dream symbols are, but it's another thing to actually hear them for yourselves. And the good thing about Dream is not only do they sound great, but they're also priced well below the competitor's prices, so that way you can actually afford to buy these symbols. And if you don't think you can get a great-sounding symbol at a low price, check out DreamSymbols.com. But first, I want you to take a listen to what these things sound like. To learn more about Dream Symbols, be sure to check them out at DreamSymbols.com. So if you're looking to get a new kit, you have two options. One, you can check out some pictures online. You can go to the store. You can see what they have there. You can drive to another store. You can find a couple more models and you can drive yourself insane driving all over the place trying to see what the kit that you want looks like. Or you can design yourself the perfect sonar kit using their SQ2 drum configurator. And this configurator allows you to build a kit from scratch, or you can use some of their predetermined configurations and then just modify them. But you can modify everything, the sizes, the configuration, the hardware, the color, all of that stuff. And you can make it to your exact specifications. Not only that, you can get an overhead view, you can get a 3D image of it. All of that is all built into the drum configurator. To build your dream sonar kit, go to sq 2 dash drumsystem.com or just google sonar sq2 you'll find it check it out the sonar drum configurator did you think that soundgarden was going to be as as successful as it was well i i always measured uh the success in soundgarden uh in musical terms you know artistic Mm -hmm. terms and i felt like each one of our records just 
you know, there was a, a real, a noticeable development going on with our songwriting, with our performing, our, our playing, our interaction, our chemistry. So uh, I felt like artistically and musically, it was hugely successful for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it seemed like when you guys broke up, you were at the top. So, yeah. you know, seemingly, what was that, 97? 97. Yeah. yeah uh, well, basically, you know, Chris quit mm-hmm. in 97. And uh, we had been, we'd been working nonstop since 88, pretty much, you know. So yeah. it was, uh, it was, it was like kind of no time off. And I know Chris wanted to do some other things, you know, some solo stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, I always, I always assumed that we would get back together at some point, like, you know, it felt like it was a sabbatical, like the band was just so good. Like, you know, it'd be silly just to, just to stop doing it. So, uh, right. you know, luckily we, we did get back together in, in uh, 2010 mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. So, um, you know, it, it just, it just, it was, it just went on its natural course, I guess. Yeah. I'm not one for living in the past or looking in the rearview mirror, but, but do you right. feel like there's, there's some untapped things that just that didn't happen there that could have that could have potentially happened had you guys not broken up um oh yeah for sure for sure i mean there's there was always you know a lot of music floating around in the band there was always mm-hmm. song you know like un, unfinished songs uh so i always felt like there was there was a lot more music that right that we could have done yeah when I always talk on the podcast about the importance of relationships and getting out and playing in bands and meeting right. more people and playing as many gigs as possible. That's right. How important have those relationships been? Because seemingly the guys in, you know, everyone in Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and all the other sort of ancillary projects that you've had your hand in, they all sort of weave together in one way, shape or form. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I come from a pretty tight knit uh, community in Seattle mm-hmm. and community is a really important thing um, in the life of a rock band you know uh, I guess I you know I if I started out as a studio musician or a you know producer or you know someone that is in the studio most of the time um, I, I you know I'm sure that I would able to I would be able to make uh, you know connections that way mm-hmm. but the way that I made my connections it, it was all based on uh, you know where I lived and and who I hung out with and, um, you know, who, who I would go support and things like that. Right. Uh, and I think, uh, that those relationships have, um, lasted, you know, the, the test of time and, uh, and they're all, they're all really important to me as a musician, as a person, you know, as Mm -hmm. a community member, as a parent, et cetera. Sure. Sure. Now, you know, we all have families, we all have different, uh, you know, we're all in different points of our life and it's nice that we can share um, all these different aspects of our lives together, you know? Sure. I was thinking, but but it is important. It's, it really is important. I know today I see a lot of amazing YouTube videos of of these young people playing like incredible drum parts, which I wish I could play. But at the same time, I'm also thinking like, okay, that's cool. It's great that you made that YouTube video, but I also hope that you are that you're playing gigs, you're playing in front of an audience, that you are, um, you know, able to take criticism, etc. So that that's that that's my that's my speech for the day. That's always my hang up is you, it's great, <laughs> but if you're playing in your basement to no one, then well, 
I mean, I guess conversely, it's amazing that uh, people are able to share their talent so readily with a huge, you know, internet audience. Right. Um, conversely, I'm also, I'm also very excited to use, uh, you know, record on my laptop and my computer uh, software, my music software that I have. Uh, I'm, I'm not a tape snob. I'm not like a, I'm not someone who lives in the past at all. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I do notice with this generation um, that there's a lot of sort of, a, 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 you know, maybe like a insulated or isolated kind of uh, forms of expression that mm -hmm. aren't always, that don't always um, include like a live audience. And I know that that's just kind of a generational thing and that's how music is uh, put out there these days. Um, but I always think it's really important to be able to share uh, music um, in, in, in a lot of different ways, even, right. even, even the older generational ways like what i'm describing here playing yeah. you know playing live basically mm -hmm. i to me i'm always worried about the disconnect or the the misunderstanding that if you want to play live and you want to tour and you want to do all of those things then you have to practice those things or you have to put yourself in a position that demonstrates your talents that's right for that thing so if you want to tour and you're in your basement blowing chops and putting it on youtube i just don't think that's the best way to cultivate the career that you want that's my that's my only rub about the whole situation yeah yeah but you know you're absolutely right uh you learn those skills by experience right um and you learn how to be able to adapt to different situations by putting yourself in an uncomfortable situation mm -hmm. and with an open mind and being able to uh being willing to learn from it you know even if it's a, a painful experience that might be uh you might, might be working with people that don't fully understand what you're bringing to the table you have to still uh you know be able to have that be as positive an experience as as you can so you might have more opportunities in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, uh, I think the, you know, like I was talking about, like being able to record, you know, an album at home on my laptop, uh, it puts musicians in a different mindset where uh, they're, they don't, maybe they don't feel like they have to collaborate with other people. Right. But I feel like music is such a communal um, art form, you know, it's like, uh, it, it's best when it's shared. Uh, that uh um sometimes when you know when it's not um completely uh when it's when it's not presented to you know like more than your than your youtube followers then uh it might it might uh it just might be be losing something sure what without you without looking into the past and lamenting about it how how do you picture or how do you how do you view the music industry now versus what it used to be well um there are uh there's there's new gatekeepers now there's the streaming services are the new kind of robber barons in in a right. way because uh you know back in the day like uh when i when i signed my uh uh, contract with a and I was I was really excited. I mean, we were we were just excited to get a, a record budget and uh, you know we could go on tour and everything was great. But then uh, you know you realize that you don't own any of your master recordings. Like you can't uh, 
um, you know, like the, the, the record label owns your masters. So right. there's, there's sort of like an indentured servant thing going on when you, when you do enter into that, that contract. Right. And uh, for the I, uninitiated, if they own your masters, that means they own the music and they can do whatever yeah. they want. They can sell it. They can put it in a commercial. Yeah. They can, they can do anything with it because right. they paid for you to make it. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we always owned our own publishing, so mm-hmm. we, we never sold any of that, but uh, a, a lot of groups did back in the eighties, you know, when they signed yeah. uh, their record contracts. Imagine Dragons um, just sold their catalog for a hundred million dollars. What's that? Imagine Dragons just sold their, their catalog for a hundred million dollars. God. Yeah. Well, yeah. see, there, there's people buying catalogs right now mm-hmm. in droves. There, there's a few investors right now that are out there snatching up people's catalogs. It's, it's kind of crazy. But um, I think the, uh, the industry is, is actually a little more, uh, it just feels a little more watered down right now. Like, um, like the gatekeepers are different. They're, they're the, like the tech world sort of controls a lot of, a lot of the, the distribution channels. Mm-hmm. With tech and then it. the VCs, like the venture yeah. capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's kind of a different uh, uh, group of, uh, you know, powerful industrialists that uh, control how music is put out there. But having said that, I, I think it's also pretty awesome that, you know, that you can record a demo in your, in your, in your, in your bedroom and put it on SoundCloud or put it on Bandcamp um, and have, have people hear it, you know? So, yeah. you know, there are aspects of it that I think are, that, that give more power to the musician, but the ways in which, uh, songwriters and musicians are valued in the record industry and in today's like kind of tech uh, tech world has never been good. I mean, right. we never get valued as much as as we should in the in in the you know the money making channels right. of it right. all. How is and especially how, drummers? Yeah, well, of course we're <laughs> we're at the bottom of the rung. It's like the the parking attendant, and then it's like then the drummer gets paid over here. Uh, how how has how has your in- obviously we don't need to talk dollars and cents, but how has your income changed from in the era of selling records to streaming? Because the argument now is always, oh, well, if you have enough streams, you can make a significant amount of money. And you guys are in a you're in a huge band, right? But it's not like years ago where if you sold, you know, if you guys sold 10 million records, you'd make a ton of money. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, um, Soundgarden never really made a whole lot off of our record sales. We, mm-hmm. we did make, we did make a good amount of money in the, in the mid to late nineties. Um, but, uh, well, I mean, we musicians make money by touring, you know, right. we, we don't, we can't expect to make anything off of streaming. It's just not going to happen for most of us. Right. Uh, even my even point is, pl- if you were in, if you were in Pearl, well, you were, but like, if it was still nineteen, you know, ninety eight, and yeah. and you guys were putting out records in ninety eight, you know, you're making more money than you are now from from the record itself. Yeah, we we back then when people were actually buying uh, CDs and vinyl. Um, you know, that, that was, that was a legitimate profit stream for, mm-hmm. you know, some of the bigger bands and some, you know, like the biggest artists back in those days, like they, they made bank off, off of selling records. Um, but you know, people don't buy records anymore. They don't, they stream, they download, and it's a, it's a completely different, uh, pay payment situation. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But even in a huge band like Pearl Jam, the streaming dollars don't really add up to much. I think like if you're Drake or if you're Taylor Swift, you know, like, uh, like the biggest artists that, you know, I think they, they can actually make a substantial amount on streaming for sure. Right. Uh, so it's, you know, I think it's also a generational thing. Like, you know, I think I'm in a, like my generation of bands probably don't, uh, um, connect with the younger generation as much in the, you know, in, in the streaming, streaming world. So, uh, you know, we just go out there and, and we play shows. Yeah. So we're, we're so fortunate that we still get to do that, you know, that we have that option of, of making, uh, making our living as touring musicians. Mm -hmm. Have you felt the shift to, to need to tour more? Are you guys touring more than you were say in the late nineties, early two thousands because of Uh, that? I think, you know, my, my, when I'm with Pearl Jam, uh, it seems like it's pretty much the same, you know, Mm -hmm. like it hasn't really ramped up or slowed down or anything. Um, yeah. Yeah. The drag about about sort of the musicians. I feel bad for younger musicians now because when we were on the road, we sold records to, and that's how we ate, and that's how we that's paid right. for our hotel rooms and things yeah. like that. And that that revenue stream is just it's not there anymore, which that's is sad. Right. Yeah, and yeah, I don't know. What's your take on that? How how do you think bands can survive on the road now? Younger oh, bands. Well, I mean, post COVID, it's going to be dealing with you know, the economic realities of people not being able to have disposable income to go to a a concert or go to movies or go to a restaurant, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think the concert industry is going to be, unfortunately, hurt for a long time just because of where we are economically. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, it's hard, man. uh, If I was starting, if I, you know, if I was 20 years old and, you know, in 2020, uh, you know, my son's 21, my daughter's 17, and uh, they had all these plans for this year and next that they have to put on hold, you know? It's yeah. like there's, there's college plans, there's job, you know, everything. Uh, so um, it's to, right now, this point in, in time is, is tricky. It's real, real tricky for, a, you know, a lot of different reasons. But... Uh, getting back to your question, you know, I'm always hopeful that, uh, there's an audience out there that is going to, uh, you know, stay with us, stay with us musicians. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I know that there's, there's different levels of success when you, when you're touring and in a lot of ways, touring is easier now than it used to be with, you know, cell phones and the internet and, you know, but nice sprinter vans and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's still a grind. It's yep. still a grind, man. And you got to be able to, you got to be able to tough it out. <laughs> it's definitely more glamorous than, or less glamorous than people think. Oh my God. You know, I, I can't, I mean, I've never I, been on a tour I, of, of you know, Pearl Jam size or anything like that, but. Well, yeah. believe me, we, uh, in Soundgarden, we used to sleep on fucking floors next to the cat box, you know? <laughs> so, uh, it certainly didn't start out that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I, look at, I look back at the early van tours I did in the 80s and they're kind of like camping trips, you know, like mm-hmm. we would, we'd go on a seven week camping trip yeah. and uh, just hope for the best, you know, just yeah. we were all psyched to be playing together and uh, we just deal with the hardships as they, as they fell. 
Yeah. I was going to say, and how amazing were those, you know, those, those early years in the van? Well, the early, the early days for me are the most memorable. Um, mm-hmm. Just because like every day was an adventure and every day was different. Um, so yeah, they're, they're definitely fond memories. Sure. You'd mentioned some, a little bit of, uh, we're getting pretty off the subject of drumming, but you were talking about the economics of, of what may happen post COVID um, right. ticket prices, all those sorts of things. The one thing that I've always loved about Pearl Jam was you guys were pretty vocal uh, against you know the whole Ticketmaster thing that was going on, and you guys were talking about like boycotting Ticketmaster for a little while. <laughs> yeah. And I remember like there was an issue where all the Ticketmaster tickets were getting scooped up by this other company, and then they found out that like Ticketmaster owned the other company yeah. as well. And it's yeah. like all this shadiness that was, that was going <laughs> on. But how hard is it because you guys are dealing with promoters and and other you know ancillary people who have their hands in there? How hard is it to make sure that your fans are getting the tickets and that they're not getting scooped up by scalpers and sold for 10 X the, the, yeah. the face value. Well, in, in the, the Pearl Jam organization has a really good system set up to safeguard against, you know, too much scalping. Mm-hmm. We can't, you know, we can't, uh, stop at all, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the Pearl Jam ticket has gone up, you know, in the past five years, our ticket is def- our ticket price has gone has has gone up, but it's it's still not like, you know, it's it's not as expensive as some of the other you know huge arena rock groups, right? Uh, but um, yeah, we we try to, you know, we we try to stay on top of that of the scalping situation as much as possible, but it's yeah. it's hard. It's it really is. hard. And then, and you also have a what i also loved you have the fan club where like the longer you've been in it then the better you get preferential treatment for seats. that's right yeah that's i mean that's that's amazing you know I, I i don't think there's a lot of bands that do that yeah yeah the the uh the 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 way that they that pj set up the the tickets and the fan club the inclusion with all the you know the people in in the 10 club is just uh it's it's really amazing. Yeah, Tim Beerman spearheads a lot of that stuff, and he's done a fantastic job. Got you. So I have two questions for you from a good friend of mine, Mike Sutton, who's a gigantic Pearl Jam fan. I think that every time I've ever been around him, there's just Pearl Jam playing like 24 hours, seven days a week. So it's two questions for, from him. Okay. Uh, one, what is your favorite Pearl Jam song to play? Oh, my gosh. You know, I love playing... I, uh, I like playing... Uh, you know, it kind of changes, but I really like playing uh like some of the uh deep cuts off the first album like garden mm-hmm. i like playing garden and deep um, 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 um and then i like you know it's like the 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 latest record we were just that we just completed uh there's there's a couple of really fun tracks that we were rehearsing uh like dance the clairvoyance uh take the long way um but yeah, it's, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of great songs to choose from, but, uh, yeah. I, I always like, like the first record has some really standout, like very well-written, powerful, you know, melodic hard rock tunes. Yeah. 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 yeah that seemed, that's up your alley more. I think a lot of that, <laughs> that hard hitting rock stuff. Uh, second question is why did you guys stop with the 10 club singles? He said, uh, their fans look forward to it and appreciate yeah. it. It was like unwrapping a special present. I the know band. God, we, you know, they, they were pretty, pretty fun for us to do as well. Uh, I think I don't really have the answer to that other than like, we've just been sort of focused on, we built a studio, uh, in mm-hmm. our warehouse. We, we've been working on this record for like two years. So 
I think we got a little a little diverted, and hopefully we'll be able to bust out a few more a few more of those in the in the future. Nice. Well, I appreciate you uh, answering those questions. Of course. And I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you okay, taking man. the time to chat. Uh, this was amazing. And so when, I know that the tour for this year was postponed for Pearl Jam. When are you planning on being back on the road? I know that you postponed some, you already rescheduled some of the European stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we, the only thing that we have officially rescheduled is Europe starting July, 2021. And we're, you know, in we're also in a holding pattern uh, with COVID as well. So it was rescheduled, but we're, you know, sort of on deck for that. Got so it. fingers crossed, we'll, we'll, we'll get out there again soon, hopefully. And where's the best place for people to follow along with what, obviously they can follow along on with Pearl Jam and all that, but with what you have going on personally, where's the best place? Well, uh, let's see. Um, you know, I, 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 I put some stuff on my Instagram page. I guess that would be, uh, I'll I'll give some updates there. I'm working on a, I just worked on some uh, solo. I worked on a solo project with the Melvins guys. I'm sort of slowly finishing up, uh, and then I'm uh, I'm just writing a bunch of music for a few different projects. So yeah, I'll 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 I'll, uh, I'll put it on my Instagram page. How about that? There you go. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'm a terrible self promoter. <laughs> I just I just do music and. Let somebody else deal with it. Let somebody it, else do the promo yeah. work. Fair <laughs> enough. I don't blame you. Well, Matt, again, uh, thank you for, for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Congratulations on all the success that you've had over the years. Continued success, happiness, and, and health for 2020 and beyond. All right. Thank you so much, Nick. Appreciate it. Thank you. There you have it, the legendary Matt Cameron. You can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 579. Also, do me a favor. Please leave a rating, leave a review. You can do it on iTunes. It's super simple to do. Let's me know that you like the podcast. Also, lets other people know that they should be listening to the podcast. So head over to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review. I would appreciate it. Also, consider checking out my other podcast called Music Biz Uncut. And I talk to everyone in all walks of life and all job titles in the music industry. It's pretty cool. You can check it out by going to nickruffini.com forward slash listen. And other than that, that's all I got for you. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me, edited by Justin Thomas, video editing by Tomas Shannon, and graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.